Take your Bibles and we'll go back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. I hope you've been encouraged in the gospel truths that we've been able to rehearse together this morning. I hope you're encouraged to love and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. How prepared are you in the event of a natural disaster? It's an unusual question, isn't it? Can you think of some of the items that are recommended to have on hand in the event of an emergency? Good luck, or good news, I have seven items I can tell you about this morning. I'm not sure we have all of these on hand, but we have some. Water is the first, one gallon per person per day. Enough non-perishable food for three days. A battery-powered radio, a flashlight, a first aid kit, extra batteries, and a whistle to signal for help. These seem like reasonable suggestions, don't they? In Peter's letter that we are studying, as he writes to the believers in Asia Minor, he's seeking to prepare them for emergency, for disaster, for hardship and suffering. It will increase. And though Peter couldn't have known it at the time, it would increase greatly in just a few years. A few years from now, as Peter is writing, he will be crucified on a cross in Rome. Nero's persecution will intensify. And just a few years after that, Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. These believers, though, are already being treated unfairly in their workplaces There's unbelievers living with believers. We're told that in chapter 3. Some are likely even losing their jobs. Others are being mocked and ridiculed by unbelievers who find their beliefs and their behavior ridiculous. Friends and family members are turning against them and rejecting them. And some, even at this time, are likely facing death itself. So with those kind of circumstances... What would you expect Peter to tell them as he prepares them for hardship, for emergency? If you knew a friend or you knew our church family was about to face greater and greater opposition, and and we don't know what the future holds for us, but if you knew that was to come, what would your counsel be? Remember, Peter's purpose is to encourage them to stand firm in the true grace of God. So what must they know? How would you begin? While this letter is addressed to those who are suffering primarily because of the persecution of their faith, there are still principles here for us as we face the various hardships in our lives. There are those in our church family that have faced incredible challenges even this week. Doctors have delivered some very difficult and unwanted diagnoses. Some have faced the prospect of death, either in their own life or in the life of a family member. Others have dealt with painful relational conflict or significant hardships at work. Some at this time are simply bearing the regular daily stresses of life. And maybe you aren't experiencing any of that. Perhaps you haven't faced any of these kinds of challenges. But Peter's message is still meaningful and valuable as it tells you how to view life circumstances. You may be needed to share these truths with a hurting believer 
that God brings across your path this week. So when you are facing hardships, rejection, or ridicule, what do you need to know? What do you need to hear? In the midst of hardship and opposition, Peter will turn his reader's attention to worship, to praise. Now, this isn't just some pie in the sky, don't worry, be happy. He's not telling them to ignore their suffering, to just grin and bear it, move through it, be a stoic. He's reshaping their mindset. He's altering their perspective. He's calling them to look beyond their immediate circumstances and to focus on the nature of a God who's steady and reliable, who's sovereign and loving. This morning, our text is verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter 1. Because this is one long sentence, verses 3 through 12, we'll read the whole long sentence and then focus our attention just on those three verses. Let's begin reading in verse 3. This is God's word to us, his people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in these truths, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, multifaceted trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise And glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Let's ask for God's help as we look at this passage together. Gracious God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears to hear the truths of the living word of God, that we might know you and be strengthened in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning will urge us to praise God for the eternal life he has given and will keep for you. Now, before Peter does anything else to comfort or encourage these troubled believers, he calls on them to make a decided and determined prayer of praise and worship. Step one for facing hardship, praise your God. Praise your God. How will this help? Well, let's find out as we look at the passage together. 
This morning, we'll focus on the two main reasons that Peter gives us for praising God in spite of hardship and suffering. If you look back at our text in verse 3, in the middle of the text, it says he's caused us to be born again first to a living hope. And then in verse 4, he says to an inheritance. Those will be our two main guiding points. So first, we're to praise God for the living hope he provides to you. Peter bursts forth in praise here at the start of his letter because our God has caused us to be born again. This long and complex sentence reveals that God's people are to praise him for his saving work. The whole sentence is about salvation through Christ. And he tells us how to re- respond right away at the very beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated as cause to be born again is unique. It's only used here in 1 Peter and only twice. And what he's telling us is that God is the source of our spiritual life. He has caused us to be born again. We've come to life eternally as a result of his gracious initiative. Not because we deserve it. Not because we can earn it. Not because once we're saved, we'll be of great credit to him by what we do. Consider this idea, this picture of being born. Spiritually, of being born again. Consider the role of a baby in his or her own birth. What initiative did they exercise to come to life? No one takes credit for their own physical birth. That's the picture here. The parents initiate new life. Likewise, God our Father initiates our spiritual life, our spiritual birth. Peter tells us how God did this in verse 23. This is the second use of this word. For you have been born again, brought to life. Not of seed, which is perishable, as in a physical birth, but imperishable, spiritual. That is through the living and enduring word of God. His word causes us to live. The word about God, about Jesus Christ, causes life. That seed is imperishable, living, and enduring. It is the foundation on which we build anything as a Christian. I cannot cause people to live. With my ideas, with my enthusiasm, with my vision of the future, his word can, and it does. Now first, as we consider praising God for a living hope, we see he has given you life. Why? Because of his mercy. Peter says that he has caused us to be born again. This is the main verbal action in these verses. If you're a believer, God has caused you to live. But why? Why? Because of his great mercy. This Greek word is parallel to the Old Testament word we see over and over again as steadfast love. We read a psalm with that attribute listed this morning. Now, it's very important for us to understand the mercy of God towards sinners. Peter says it's his great mercy. Why is God's mercy so great? If you don't see his mercy as great, you don't value your salvation like Peter would want you to. Like Peter is urging you to. We're reminded of what is said in the Gospels. 
The one who's forgiven little loves little. And I think there's a temptation for us who have grown up in Christian homes to lose sight of how much we've been forgiven. So let's rehearse again what God has done for us. Consider what Peter will tell us throughout this letter. Down in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says that we were formerly ignorant. We had no idea of the truth. We were blind. Paul says that we are blind to the truth of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1. He says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Peter will say in chapter 2 verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we were by nature born this way. This is how we live apart from the spirit of God's work. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, before we showed any initiative toward him. He made us alive together with Christ so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. One author summarizes, it is an inestimable privilege and joy to be the object of God's mercy. That's the encouragement here. When you're facing hardship, remind yourself, you're an object of God's mercy. Mercy from God can never be earned. Paul makes this explicitly clear in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We will grow to value God's mercy and praise him as Peter does here as we remind ourselves of what it cost our God to show us such mercy. Peter writes again in his letter in chapter 3, 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones that he might bring us to God. 1 John 4, 10 demonstrates that God's love for us was costly immensely costly he writes in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and his love caused his action and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins christ would bear all of the wrath of god for sin no matter what your past has looked like as an unbeliever you deserve God's wrath for all eternity. The only way you could be saved is through the death of his son. Your sin is so bad. God had to sacrifice his beloved son to bring you into his family. Do you see his mercy? Pastor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains Christ being the propitiation for our sins means that God has made him responsible for our sins, though he committed no sin. 
They've been placed upon Jesus Christ and God dealt with them and punished them there at the cross. And therefore, because he has punished our sins in Christ in his body on that cross, he can justly forgive us. Do you see his initiative? He has caused us to live. Can you see why we must praise God no matter what circumstances that we face? When we truly hear and meditate on the truths of Christ's work for us, we delight to praise God. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, the worst of circumstances, even when our faith is the cause of our hardship and suffering, and we feel that status as exiles in this world, we still have reason to praise You have every reason to praise God today because you are no longer a child of wrath. You have every reason to worship God because he's shown you great mercy and made you his own. Do you see how that's comforting? We're spiritually alive today because he is infinitely merciful. Now, do you counsel your heart this way with the truths of the gospel? Peter demonstrates that these are essential, stabilizing truths. Here's your motivation to walk with God this week. Here's your motivation to express gratitude, not just at this time of the year, but always. He's shown you mercy when all you truly deserve is his just judgment. Second, as we consider what he's given us, this living hope, He's given you life through the resurrection of Jesus. Our eternal life is a direct result of Jesus' resurrection. If God had not raised Jesus from the dead, our salvation is incomplete. It's meaningless. It's not possible. Through the resurrection, he guarantees that we will live. We're so unified to him that his life is ours. We will live forever because he will live forever. Because he has conquered sin and the grave. Now this section, verses 3 through 5, focuses on the future of our salvation. As we break up this long sentence, we're going to focus on future, present, and past. That's what the author does. And he's saying all of it is to the praise of God for our salvation. Here he's saying he's caused us to be born again to a living, future hope. Peter's encouraging believers facing hardship and opposition to their belief in Christ by pointing their gaze toward the future. They have a living hope, a sure confidence that inestimable blessings await them because they're in him. This confidence is based on verifiable evidence that strengthens our faith. Think of who's writing this. Peter's grounding our hope in the resurrection of Jesus, whom he himself had seen and touched and spoken with and eaten with. A living hope is never then extinguished by untold circumstances. We can be confident of our future and eternity with God because Jesus triumphed over death itself. So whatever happens to us in this world, whatever circumstance you're facing, it can never overwhelm the blessing of our future life with him. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we're to praise God for the inheritance kept for you. 
The second reason Peter gives us for praise is because he's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. First, he's given you a secure inheritance. That word kept is what's driving us here. It's a secure inheritance. As we think of this threefold description, the word imperishable means that this inheritance is unable to pass away. It can never be destroyed. It can never be spoiled. It can never be stolen. It's undefiled. It will never lose its luster or its beauty. It will never fade. Unfading here is a word used of flowers which do quickly fade. And it's, it's a contrast that's being made. It highlights this idea that the inheritance is of supernatural quality that cannot be diminished by time. Your future is guaranteed by Jesus Christ himself. He writes in John 14, your heart must not be troubled. Now, why does Jesus tell us not to be troubled? He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. Now, as Peter wrote, he would have had in mind the Old Testament concept of this inheritance. And for the Jews in the Old Testament, almost consistently, that inheritance was land. Think of the beginning of their wilderness wanderings. They were promised an inheritance, the promised land. In the book of Joshua, the land is referenced over and over again. And think of it, land is a pretty solid and stable investment, right? But consider how even those promises were insecure because of the sins of the people, because they could not fulfill their covenant obligations to God. Israel gets exiled from their land. It's continually threatened by enemies, by Midianites and Amalekites and Philistines. And even here in the first century, Peter is calling his readers exiles. Those who have been forced away from their home, from their land, from their inheritance. For many of them, this is quite literal. Even a land inheritance was not ever fully guaranteed because God's people were required to keep a covenant that they could not keep, that they would not keep. And God allows them to be forced out of their land. The inheritance of the old covenant could be taken away. That's the contrast that Peter is making here with this inheritance promised to believers. But our inheritance of the new covenant can never be lost, forfeit, or taken away because it is kept in heaven for you. It is secured by the resurrection. How do you say, well, listen, the old covenant was taken away by the sins of the people. We still sin. But our righteousness now is Jesus' righteousness. All the demands of the covenant are fulfilled in him. The inheritance is guaranteed in him. The word kept here in verse 4 is called a divine passive. It means that God himself is keeping your inheritance. It's not up to you to keep anymore. He guards it. He's met all the demands. It's secure in him. Let me try to illustrate, if I can, 
I think this may fall short in some ways, but I want to try to illustrate what it means, this idea of the inheritance. Just imagine that one day you got an email or a text message from a lawyer telling you you need to come and see him for an appointment in two days' time. You have no idea what they would want to see you about. You don't know if you're in trouble or something else is happening, you're being sued or something else happened, but perhaps you're even getting a little nervous. On the day of the appointment, your curiosity is almost overwhelming. What can this be about? You find out in that meeting that you have a very, very wealthy family member who has left you their money in a trust to be received in 10 years' time. It's a sum of over $500 million. This inheritance is guaranteed. It will stay safely in the bank until 10 years' time is over. The will is ironclad. The money is yours. It's in your name. It's just a matter of time before you can receive it. Now, how would that change your outlook on the current difficulties that you're facing in life right now? What would $500 million to your name change about your perspective? How would you feel leaving that lawyer's office that day? Peter is saying that you have an inheritance far greater than any sum like that. Our minds are immediately engaged. Our imagination is soaring. We're spending that money already, right? Listen, that's just revealing how our hearts are tied to this earth. Peter's saying, do you not understand your inheritance is far, far greater than that? Money like that, even money like that can run out. No matter what the amount, you can't take it with you into the next life. It brings all kinds of pressures and problems and new friends along with it. Your eternal inheritance is not backed by a temporal bank. It's backed by the king of kings. Secondly, not only will he keep your inheritance, he will keep you by his own power. He's keeping, protecting, and guarding us. It says in verse 5, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This idea of salvation is linked to the idea of inheritance. Our inheritance is the final salvation. Now this might be a little confusing because we always think of salvation as, I am saved, I've received salvation. But when you think about it in the Bible, in salvation history, salvation has three different time components, past, present, and future. We made a decision in the past to follow Christ and we're saved at that point from the penalty of sin. As we put our faith in Christ, we no longer would be responsible to pay for our sins. We continue to believe today, right now, and are being saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has power. It doesn't have to dominate us. Though we still give in from time to time, its power is broken. One day in the future, we will see Christ face to face and he will make all things new and we will finally be saved from the presence of sin. All things will be made new. Peter's saying our salvation is ready. There's nothing more to be accomplished. It's like that inheritance in the bank. It's there. You have it. Your name's on it. You own it. 
God only has to say the word and finish his plan for us, but it's ready right now. Our future eternal inheritance is kept by our God, but we ourselves are also being guarded or protected by him. This is a military term. Verse five says, who by God's power are being guarded. It's used of soldiers who guard something of value. As I thought about this week, this brought to my mind the never-ending vigilance of those soldiers in Arlington National Cemetery that stand guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. On the ABC News not too long ago, it was reported that because of the dangers from a hurricane approaching Washington, D.C., the military members assigned to that duty of guarding that tomb were given permission to suspend their assignment. They refused. Soaked to the skin, marching in the pelting rain of a tropical storm, they said that guarding the tomb was not just an assignment, it was the highest honor that can be afforded to a service person. The tomb has been patrolled continuously, unendingly, 24-7, since 1930. That is a constant guard. Those are men motivated by honor. But our God is keeping us constantly motivated by something far greater, with greater power and endurance. One commentator points out that this word translated as guard can mean not only to protect against outside threats, but the word also can mean setting soldiers outside around the city to keep people from escaping. And if this word carries that idea as well, the correct understanding then tells us that God is not only protecting us from those who would attack our faith, he's also protecting us from leaving him, from abandoning our confidence in him. How are we protected by the power of God according to verse 5? Peter says it is through faith. Who protects us? It is God himself. What does he protect us for? For final salvation. How does he do this? He says through faith. How does that work? This is a question that pulls all of this together. From what is God protecting us? What is he continually protecting us from with his divine power? It can't be that he's protecting us from trials. It can't be that he's protecting us from Satan himself. Satan can't make us fall away. Peter's already demonstrating that these trials are a part of his wise plan. He's protecting us from losing out on our inheritance. He's protecting us from not reaching that final destination of salvation. What is the only thing that can hinder me from reaching God's final destination for my life as a believer? What's the only thing I need to be protected from? Well, to answer that, what must I have to gain eternal life even in the end? It's faith. It's faith. Peter's assuring us that God is protecting me from unbelief that grows in my heart. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is why Philippians 1.6 is such a reassuring truth. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out unto completion until the day of Jesus Christ. These verses are affirming for us that God is conspiring for our endurance. 
He's feeding and sustaining the faith that he gives to us. He's guarding you in your walk until you reach the end, the final salvation. He's saying this isn't up to you to muster up the faith in and of yourself. He's holding you. The Bible addresses our very real and legitimate concern that perhaps over time, dealing with hardship of life, the opposition to our walk with God, maybe there will be a point where I won't want to follow God anymore. Do you think these believers are concerned about that? What's the hope? God's promising here in verse 5 that God himself is exercising his power and his will to sustain you even through the most difficult challenges that assault your faith. We, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Have you ever seen a set of balance beams at the park, at a children's park? Sometimes they have a few different tiers to them. And for a small child, it can be a bit of a challenge. It's part of an obstacle course. They take a few wobbly steps and rock back and forth, and they may make some slow progress. But picture in your mind a parent stepping up beside them grabbing onto their hand and walking beside them as they go across that balance beam. Their balance becomes more sure. Their steps more steady. They're holding on to their parent. But far more importantly, mom or dad is holding on to them. Yes, you have to exercise faith. But God is holding on to you. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ is your Father, too, he's holding you. No one, not even you, can dislodge his grip on your life. You're being guarded by the same heavenly Father, this power that accomplished the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. You have to hold on to him, but even that faith is a gift. You've been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, it has been given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Think of how we affirm this truth together when we sing, for my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. That reminds me that he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life because he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. And then we sing in that chorus, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. That's our hope. Stand firm, Peter says. Keep walking with him. Keep trusting. Keep striving to live for him because he promises to hold on to you. How should we respond to these incredible truths that he has caused us to live? That he's given us eternal life? How should we respond knowing that we have a living hope? Knowing we have a guaranteed inheritance? Peter's already told us here at the beginning. It's praise. It's praise. Mercy gave this to me. I don't deserve this. In this passage, Peter models for us how to counsel our hearts as we face hardship of any kind. 
we're to come back again and again and remind ourselves of who God is. What he's like, what he's done for us. And as you do, it will change your view. It will change your thinking. It will change your outlook. It will change your beliefs. It will change your feelings. Look at Christ again. Our passage tells us that you always have reason to praise God because he has given you eternal life. Remember, even this morning, as we are about to come to this table, Christ strengthens our faith when he says that one day, like Peter has said, we will enjoy unhindered fellowship with him. He says, I I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Around this table, we're proclaiming his death and the incredible future that is to be ours. We're celebrating our inheritance. Salvation is done. We're just waiting for him to come back. This table is meant to fuel our confident hope for the future. So for what reasons should you praise God this week? For the many facets of the eternal life he's provided to you. When you're assured of his love and the blessings of eternal life because he's shown you undeserved mercy, all the other problems of life are put into perspective. They aren't erased. They don't go away. But they also don't have to dominate your heart and mind. That's what Peter's saying. In spite of all the hardships of life that God is allowing in your life right now, you always have reason to praise him. Because he's secured for you eternal life. Let's pray. I want to give you a few moments to respond in your hearts as we consider this passage. Are you turning your heart to him for his grace in your life? For the salvation he's given? For the protection he offers? Take a moment now to respond in your own hearts.